Will 2024 be another challenging year for startups? Well, the World Bank actually came out with the following prediction for this year. They said that global growth is projected to slow for the third year in a row from 2.6% last year to 2.4% this year. Almost three quarters of a percentage point below the average in the 2010s. They're also saying that developing economies are projected to grow just 3.9%, which is one percentage point below the average of the previous decade. They are dubbing this the weakest half-decade performance in 30 years. Hi, everyone. My name is Hesse Jones, and uh, welcome to Tech Uncensored. This is the so-called recession that never really came. And the reason I say that is that we've had, in, in the last little while, uh, low unemployment despite the fact that we've had high interest rates. But there are indications similar to what we've seen at the start of the Ukraine-Russia war two years ago that set off this economic fallout where we saw a fall of both crypto and NFTs. At the same time, there was this massive investment pullout from overvalued startups that received millions in funding during the pandemic. So this time, while the economy is in a better place, we still see mounting geopolitical tensions that will actually weigh in and influence what, what happens with investment this year. What we've seen in 2023 is something that we continue to see at the turn of the, the, the new year with the rising tech layoffs. Um, it was amazing to me how many l workers were laid off uh, last year. Amazon saw the most with over 27,000 workers, Meta, 21,000. Google and Microsoft, respectively, around 12,000. So in the fall of last year, I spoke to David Wright, who's an investment analyst, and he said, and I quote, investor returns in the VC industry have not always paid up for the risks involved in private investments. So he noted that in the last four decades, VC performance had its ebbs and flows, with the 90s being the standout period. But the average returns from VCs have always consistently hovered around 9% compared to many of the public markets. But he highlights that the most telling metric is 1.8% returns, indicating that there is this disproportionate performance that favors only a handful of VCs, while a majority of them have actually underperformed. So the question is, will investors be more measured and discriminating in their search for promising new ventures this year? For founders, what's actually in store for them as the year unfolds? How should they be managing their businesses, not only to improve growth, but increase their visibility to investors and essentially weather this storm of uncertainty? So thank you, everyone, for joining. I'm pleased to... I'm pleased to be joined today by three seasoned startup advisors and investors, and I will add them to stage. Welcome, Brian Duarte, who is a social venturist. He is a serial entrepreneur, a professional engineer, and has over 30 years experience in the energy sector. He is a managing partner at Black Tech Capital and our newest EIR at Altitude Accelerator. Welcome, Brian. And Glenn Nishimura is the principal and chief people strategist at Nishimura Consulting, which is based here in Toronto. 
He's an experienced advisor, consultant, and mentor, and helps many early and growth stage startups and scale-ups across North America, Asia, Europe, builder and optimizer teams, culture, and people operations. And finally, uh, last but not least, Olga Cruz, who is a senior associate at Impact Investing Firm Good and Well. And she leads the impact management practice and sources, analyzes, invests in early stage Canadian businesses. Her prior roles involved investing in healthcare and agriculture innovations. And she has dedicated her efforts to actually supporting entrepreneurs in conflict affected regions, guide, guiding them towards investor readiness. So, welcome everyone. Thank you. So, okay, so we have a full group today, and uh, I, I'm sure you all have your opinions on what's happening with the economy and how this affects founders. So let me start with uh, Brian. Is David Wright correct? Investor returns in the BC industry have not always paid up to the risks of private invest investments, and more importantly, he says that there is this, this disproportionate performance that favors only a few VCs. So yes, he is right. I mean, people, I think we exist in this myth that all VCs, you know, overall it's performing well, it's doing well. But if you go and dig into the numbers, what he's saying is absolutely correct. And it's borne out. If you look at 2021, 2020, 2022, there was a lot of money thrown in by VC funds, VC firms into startups without, in some cases, doing a lot of diligence. And I think the number I saw this morning, if you discount for large investment into companies like OpenAI, it's $88 billion in write-downs that has happened over, over the last year. So yes, overall, the, the industry hasn't performed that well, and it's, it's favoring a select few. And that's why I think going into 2024, you're going to see a lot more investor diligence, right? Not only from investors themselves in, in the funds, but investors looking at who to invest into. So where you look at that from the startup perspective, it's going to take longer before they get money put into them because the investors are going to hopefully be doing more diligence. I mean, I can speak for myself. One of the things that we do, we actually start working with founders well before we're ready to make an investment to understand who they are, what they're doing, what they're building, and can we help them? Can we help them be successful? We're not one of those venture funds, which it's just put the money in and hope the company's going to be successful. I think the smarter investors are going to be working closely with the founders, whether it's connecting them or their networks, providing them different expertise that they're going to need along the way as the companies grow. But it's going to take a lot more diligence from investors to, to break that cycle. But it still probably will be those funds that are doing those sort of things that are going to be successful. And from the startup perspective, it's going to take time, as I just said. Okay. Um, well, I assume that you're the same way. Like you build relationships with founders earlier on before you actually start investing, right? And I know this is, this is one way to, to minimize risk in the future because you, you know that they have something there. They, you like their team. You've built a relationship with them over time. But you you also say that, and I want you to respond to that, but you also talk about the fact that 2023, despite it being a tough year for startups, is 
that the fear induced by the overall decrease in, in funding led to this natural selection process that you call entrepreneurial Darwinism. So can you expand on that? Yes, of course, Hesse. So first, to address what Brian was saying, 100%, we want to meet the founders even before they are starting to raise and develop that relationship. I think that even the presence of building an investment memo is a chance to see if you can trust a person to understand if you can work with them. So definitely it's the key part of the due diligence and, the, and how we build relationships. And then back to your question about um, the entrepreneurial Darwinism. So 2023 was certainly a year that impacted investor confidence. And I mean, you've probably seen that overall level funding decreased by 30%, reaching a six-year low. So definitely funders are being way more conservative and valuations have been recalibrated. And I think that here, what is really exciting now is that we get to see who are the founders that survive. So I don't mean that uh, it's the law of the jungle and that everything can be justified, even going beyond business ethics. But what I'm trying to say is that it's really exciting to see now who are the founders that survived based on the creativity, the resilience. And these are usually qualities that we see blended in the, for social entrepreneurs, because for them, uh, usually it's about a mission. It's not just something that they're doing to get some money for these founders. It's about, it's part of their DNA. So you see that resilience and you see how they're actually building long-term value and more sustainable business models. So I think that's part of what we will see a bit more in 2024. In fact, I would say that January has been a month in which the founders that we're meeting are actually not just providing the milestones and showing the traction, but also showing how they have been uh, managing their cut flows, how they're going to reach break-even. So those are some of the key differences that we're seeing right now. Hey, thank you. And so, Glenn, uh, I brought I brought Glenn on uh, this panel because you you look at things um, a little bit differently from the founder's perspective, and so you you see how a lot of these outside forces are actually impacting uh, companies um, internally uh, within their teams and within the organization. So, what did twenty twenty three look like for a lot of these founders? And and you know. What do you see in terms of, you know, how, how maybe some of them are fortunate than others and did they behave differently in, in, in the last year or so? Yeah. What a year it was. <laughs> uh, I can definitely tell you from a people perspective, the general mood was, uh, was similar to how most of us feel just before we go to the dentist. Uh, and that's to say fear and worry. <laughs> Uh, I saw a lot of team anxiety last year. It was definitely higher than usual. Um, not surprising given the fact that we had, as you mentioned before, layoff news on an almost daily basis. Not just one or two key executives, but 50 people one day, 100 people the next day, 200 the day after that, entire companies folding. 
so it left a lot of people wondering, oh my God, am I next? When's the hammer going to fall? Uh, if I do stay, am I going to take on more work? I don't get paid enough. Maybe I should brush up my resume just in case. You know, so that leads, a, leads to a lot of sleepless nights uh, for a lot of people. And I think culturally, it, uh, it soured what was otherwise a fun and very enjoyable place to work. Uh, I think the only people who probably who weren't worried at all were the senior engineers in working in AI. I know we've seen their salaries jump about 12% just in the last three months alone. So they're sitting pretty. Uh, but yes, founders definitely had it roughest, especially first-time founders who hadn't gone through this kind of thing before. Um, one client of mine in Europe, he was contemplating with his co-founders a third round of layoffs last year. And uh, another client of mine in Singapore, they were, um, they were pretty much choking up when we were talking about who was potentially on the chopping block and how they were going to actually break the news and handle all of those layoffs. So yeah, it was, it was a year that uh, was very stressful. And I think it's a year that a lot of startup founders would rather soon forget. Yeah. I don't know. It, it seems to be rolling over this year. Yeah, and I, I, I think the one thing that I, I want to point out, and, and um, I, I just listening to the news and I'm just watching the stuff that's happening on Wall Street, yeah. it, it seems like there's the layoffs happen yeah. and then um, because of a bottom line thing, yeah, they didn't meet exactly. specific goals. And then what sure. we end up seeing probably in the next few months is that there are going to be uh, people that will be rehired. Yeah, and that's, that's unfortunately the ebbs and flows of the way this industry works, you know. So, exactly. you know, not, not surprisingly, the fortunate ones who actually fared a little bit better than others, they were probably among the smartest because they were the ones who didn't massively or needlessly overhire during the boom times. So they didn't have to lay off as many people or go through as many rounds of layoffs as other people. Um, and if they did lay people off, they managed to get away with doing it only once. Even if it was an exceptionally large number, they only had to do it right. once. You know, they follow the old adage we have of cut once, cut deep. Because if you have repeated layoffs, and especially if they're very close together, it's usually a good indication that the initial cuts uh, weren't deep enough. Right, right. And, and that's the unfortunate thing is everything's tied to certain metrics. And if yes. they, you don't hit those metrics and yeah. you know a fallout happens correct so uh brian let me let me ask you this you okay. yourself see that maybe this could be a pivotal pivotal maybe year for generative ai or ai in general um we're starting to see parts of it after after last year making strides within like across industries for productivity for content management and now it's starting to make its way like across organizations? How do you think in general AI will play out? Well, I mean, AI in general, for one thing, it's become a general buzzword. So everyone, everyone is spotting AI. Almost every single tech company I talk to has AI involved. So you, part of it's going to be, if I look at the investor perspective or even the consumer perspective, doing a deep dive into truly what is AI for that particular company? Is it just some simple machine learning where they're just able to analyze a large data set or is there more depth to what is the data set? What's the model? So there's a lot of components to AI, but it is definitely something that everyone expo is exploiting. I mean, 
You've got companies out there that are using it for reasons to either lay off or not hire certain people. And we know that it can make better decisions. You look at say doctors, for example, and the amount of times that they're wrong, you know, but yet they don't have exposure. An individual doctor doesn't have exposure to the latest techniques happening all the way around the world from in the space time, sustainability and clean tech. What's the latest, what's going on. So being able to use AI to analyze what's happening in different areas, be able to do predictions off, off of that analysis to fill in the gaps. It's going to be a crucial component. And so the successful companies this year are going to be those that are able to exploit an AI's capabilities, but also combine it with their own, own, own knowledge and their own way of putting it. Cause I know you made a mention that, you know, general intelligence, you know, or general is, is on its, I think that's a long way away. Um, I don't see that as in, coming anytime or soon, however, being able to be creative and that's what we as human beings are good at. So being able to take that creativity and utilize the tools, the AI to me is just another tool. It's no different than, you know, when the internet came to our capabilities, you know, how can you use it? Delta can utilize, use it, utilize it and make the best users that are going to be doing the best. So definitely a key thing and understanding how to use it is going to be critical. Okay. Thank you. So Olga, um, when we talk about, you know, how prospective ventures make themselves a little bit more visible to, to, um, investors, um, you talk about the importance of alignment. So what does, what does this mean to you? So Hesse, when everything is going right, usually there is very little friction between the co-founders the relationship between the founders and the investors or the syndicate as a whole. But in the area of entrepreneurship, that's not always the case and there are going to be ups and downs. And then when things start becoming a bit more challenging, that's when you realize the need of having people that are truly aligned with your goals, with your long-term vision. So. At that point, you really want people by your side that agree with your values and that actually care about you. So, um, you know, founders need to truly understand what's the strategy of their investors. What are their expectations? If, for example, they're expecting an exit in a couple of years and they just want to prioritize short-term gains, or if they can be more flexible because of that commitment to that long-term goal. Also, I think that sometimes founders don't realize that they might get pushed in a certain direction and they might have to compromise some things that truly matter to them. That's just because that's what investors want. So from the beginning, knowing how you're going to build a cup table and who you're going to bring in is definitely key for the success of any venture. And the same thing applies within the syndicate. So one of the things that I have certainly learned over my career has been that bringing other investors that are also aligned to participate in the early stages of the venture, definitely the risks the investment. In one way, you're a little bit more, yeah, you know that you have other people that can contribute with fund one investments, but at the same time, similar to what Brian was saying, if you know that they're going to support the founders in different ways, they're going to also 
introduce them to other people in their network, then you can definitely expect better returns, a better performance when uh, you are bringing other people into the table that can contribute and that have that same vision. So that's, that's one thing. And then you were asking how to make the founders a bit more visible. I think that that's when accelerators such as Altitude play a key role. Um, I actually participate in over the summer, over several workshops and um, yeah, several cohorts that are supporting entrepreneurs. So that's a key way how we can uh, get to learn a little bit more about them. Usually it's even better when you get to meet them through a process in which you are just like supporting them with their strategy, with their fear of change, for example, and you get to know and build that relationship, you get to know them better. And um, yeah, definitely later when they start racing, then you can um, even accelerate the process and you have already learned a lot about them. And yeah, that's, that's one of the key things that, that I have learned. Um, I want to turn to, to Glenn on this one because, uh, Olga, you talked about, you know, ways that they can be more visible to investors and maybe things that they need to learn or, or need to improve on. For programs, let's say for accelerators, there's so many of them out there. And we've actually noticed that we, even within the accelerator space, there's, there is a softening in the market in terms of the number of companies that are, that are actually applying. Um, there, are, there are accelerators that are saying that we're, we're not seeing the number of pe- um, startups coming in for help like we used to. Do you see this as something of a risk this year? The number of, I'd say, startup founders that might become a little bit more insular in 2024, Glenn? I, I think that's likely to continue. Yes, I think this is going to be uh, a year of conservatism still, you know, despite the fact that everyone is hoping for a, a better and brighter back half of this year. Um, I think a, a lot of my startup founder clients, they're hunkering down. Um, they're playing it. They're playing it safe right now. So um, I think this is still a good time to still get in touch with accelerators and 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 have them help you. Um, but I think a lot of them are still kind of taking a cautious optimism sort of perspective on on this year. But um, I'm encouraging startup founders to just reach out and talk to people for for this year, right? And see how they can maintain that momentum and still stay agile uh, without necessarily going gangbusters and then finding themselves in trouble again. Okay, thank you. Um, Brian, so clean tech is, is actually growing a lot. I think probably because we have so many problems we need to solve and we have to solve them pretty fast, right? Otherwise, Mother Nature is going to get us. But what do you think um, is in store for this sector in 2024, um, especially with the potential softening in the investment side? I mean, there's a couple aspects to that. The the good news for the clean tech sector is that governments still continue to put money towards them. Um, you know, here in, here in Canada, we've got, we've got different things. Hopefully the whole SDTC debacle gets solved, sorted out soon. And because that was a great source of funding for clean tech sustainability companies. However, there's other initiatives that are out there. There's a lot of different initiatives in the U.S. and a lot of different foundations. So when you start talking about what else is available going out for foundation. So 
what I advise clean tech companies is put a plan in place, put a plan in place of where you want to go and look towards what you're solving and where there may be a match. Uh, one of the best companies that we have, they've already mapped out well five years into the future. Okay. We know we need VC type funding to cover off our operational costs, but because of the space we're involved in, it's going to take massive project costs um, to meet them. So what foundations, what institutions can, can back them? So start mapping out of a plan and go looking what grants may be available to see there. So that is an exercise onto itself. And again, go, going back to what your Glenn was saying, bringing in, and it's not, yes, be conservative of what you're doing, but do not ignore accelerators. Look to see what accelerators could be aligned that can help you with that mission. And I always say a lot of accelerators, there's a lot of similar content. So really look and spend some time digging in when you're looking at an accelerator, who the people are in there that can help you with that and, and connect you to whether these grants and so on. Another big untapped area for clean tech is corporate funding. A lot of corporations are looking to either decarbonize what they're doing or to uh, beef up their environmental initiatives. And so what corporations may align with what you're doing? And that may be the source of funding, maybe a source of customers. The best problem to solve is a problem that somebody already has. I mean, we know in this industry, you're either solving for product market fit, you're solving for team, or you're solving for scale. And I... For me, when I look at companies in the clean tech space, I want to make sure the team is the right. So that's the same thing that Olga was talking about. We were talking about before there's teams or the values aligned. Are they have the, uh, right mentality framework? Are they coachable? So great. That one's in place. So that's a definite thing. Any type of company, including clean tech companies, making sure that and now when you look at product market fit, if they're looking at corporations and seeing what are corporations' problems, what are the things out there that we can solve, or how does that align with something in our solution, they can be a great source of funding as well as a great source for customers. So then the only thing you should be solving for is how to scale up and how do we reach the sizes that is needed um, to make that big impact that we're looking for in the clean tech space. So... A huge opportunity to me, it's the, it's a great space to be in and so much is going to be changing and coming and it'll be changing rapidly because yeah, mother nature is not going to sit back and say, oh, that's okay. We won't worry about forest fires this year or floods or, you know, massive, uh, environmental disruption. We're, we've caused it and it's going to come at a faster place. So getting to those solutions quicker is what we need. Okay, thank you. Olga, um, what do you think? Like, do you, are there uh, other opportunities within the clean, clean tech space for founders this year? Well, it's a fascinating space and definitely we're hoping that SETC will come back, but you can already see that there are many other foundations that have committed to use their capital for clean tech. And I would say that maybe something that is improving is that before we would see more capital for like series B investments. And I think that that's changing a little bit. And now um, it's a bit more available for early stage founders. So it's, it's definitely a great time for founders to start um, building in this space. It's urgent. It's where also more capital is coming in we're also seeing the well 2024 is going to be the first year in which the 
social finance fund that is backed by the government of Canada will start uh, reaching the entrepreneurs as the fund of fund uh, managers have started deploying their capital. So um, definitely it's a space that is picking up. I was reading this morning the um, CIBC report of 2023, and one of the things that they mentioned was that the top-performing companies were actually the companies that were in the fintech space and space related to sustainability. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a good place to be investing in. Thank you. So, Glenn, I'm just going to touch on something that you said um, in an article. You said with cheap money in high valuations came the boundless optimism that the good times would never end. So what are the implications of this and the lessons that like founders this year can take with them? Um, I think in some cases, the, the biggest implication and arguably the most dangerous uh, is simply the development of hubris. You know, when you have easy access to capital and all of your friends and your family are, are saying that your company is worth some insane and unrealistic valuation, it's very easy to start believing that you're invincible. And that can start creating some very serious blind spots. Uh, so in terms of lessons, what I'm encouraging my founder clients to do uh, this year are three things on the people front. Uh, number one, don't just work on your PMF, as Brian was saying, work on your PCF, your people and culture fit, because this is going to be foundational uh, to your growth. Absolutely. And number two, take care of your existing team. You know, especially if you've laid people off recently, you will find that morale is extremely fragile right now. So you have to stabilize and control any bleeding before you completely hemorrhage out. Um, and if you've never done a stay interview before in your life, now is a great time to start. And once things do start to improve, and we're starting to get a sense of that right now, don't stop. Don't stop caring. Don't stop investing in your people. Because ideally, you should be checking on the pulse of your people and how your culture is doing as frequently and as intently as you would your financials. I would love to see it have that same degree of emphasis and focus. And third, don't stop recruiting. You know, you don't necessarily have to hire right now, but you have to keep looking. You have to keep talking to people. It's absolutely imperative that you keep that talent pipeline full at all times, because the worst time to start looking for people is when the economy turns around and everyone is fishing from the same pond as you are. That's way too late. You have to get your hooks in early. Okay, thank you. That's actually a good segue into the, the next question because um, Olga had this, this interesting quote about it being more important than ever to bring our humanity to work. And so this is what you said, Olga. You said whether you call it stakeholder capitalism, conscious capitalism, or some variation, this approach simply flows from bringing our whole selves to work. And organizations make better decisions when they make a full, full, they make room, sorry, for the full scope of people's values, concerns, and capacities. Can you expand a little bit on that? I want each of you to, to kind of respond to what this means to you. Olga first. So we're often taught that we need to park our humanity to work, to our humanity at the door and to do business. Sure. But what we're hoping we can see 
around this year is more people, more investors, more founders bringing that humanity to work. You know, we have seen that individuals, businesses, society is where way more resilient that we thrive when we can operate from that place, from that place of just like being kind, thinking about the people that is around us, that is working with us and expanding our sense of belongingness. You know, when you do that, that's when you're actually empowered, when you're taking more responsibility. And on one hand, it brings a fulfilling sense uh, to life. But at the same time, if you want to see it just from like a very rational perspective, it actually improves long-term value as you're improving all of your environmental, social, and governance aspects. So regardless if you have an impact focus or not, uh, you still want to have at least a minimum threshold of these practices. And there are very easy ways how you can check on how are you doing. Um, one tool that I highly recommend is ESVVC. So it's a very simple assessment to just like check on how are you doing? What's happening with your team? Are you actually uh, prioritizing their well-being? How is the diversity of the team? What's happening with the oversight of the company? So it's definitely something that just can't be forgotten. And it's something that is definitely going to help us in this year to thrive as a society. Thank you. That's very well said. Brian, what, what do you think? I mean, what Ovo said was great. I mean, it, it, it's so key and so important. I tell people all the time, solving the climate crisis is not really a technological challenge. I mean, we have technological things to develop, but it's a people challenge. It's about cultures, changing behaviors. So all that starts inside of a company. You know, if you're bringing your humanity, as always said, if you're bringing yourself to work and you're looking at how do you feel about this? How do you feel about why you're solving this problem? That will come across in how you solve the problem. So. It's a, it's a very critical component for me. You know, we go back to talking about values. One of the values that's important to me is, is love and people not love in the romantic sense. You know, if you have love for the people you work with, if you have love for your customers, if you have love for the planet, you're going to make better decisions than if you are just chasing a dollar. So, and, and again, in, to me, where we're looking at having this big impact, you have an impact on the climate. All that has to come into play. Otherwise, if it's just about the dollar or if you're in a company about the next fundraise and not where the company's going for the future or, or, or the, that big mission that you started off with, you're, you're bound to fail in the end. You, you may get a payoff as an individual, but why you set out to do it will not uh, carry forward if you don't pay attention to all those humanity aspects of it. I mean, Olga couldn't have said it better. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Glenn? Yeah, kudos to, uh, to Olga as well. I think she captured this perfectly because I'm really happy we're talking about this, Hesse, because this really is the backbone of the kind of culture that I want every startup to have. You know, this level of vulnerability, empathy, open communication, this is what attracts the brightest minds to join your company over another company. Right? It has nothing to do with gobs of equity or getting company t-shirts or unlimited cans of Red Bull. You know, this is really what attracts the brightest minds. And at 
particularly in this type of environment and atmosphere, it's also what keeps those brightest minds from jumping ship when the going gets tough. It's what keeps them in the game. Um, but that said, you know, creating uh, an environment like this is not easy. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of focus. Uh, and I think a lot of startup founders just assume that it's going to happen organically. It's just going to happen by default. It's just going to happen overnight. I'll just cross my fingers. It, it can't be. It doesn't work that way. It has to be part of a deliberate plan that the entire company is committed to. And as I tell my startup founders, it has to be embedded in every practice and system that you have, particularly as it evolves around people. So stop hiring people based on experience and skills. Stop assuming that someone with 10 years of experience must be twice as fast, twice as smart, twice as skilled as someone with five years of experience. It doesn't work that way. This is what we should be leading with. This is the kind of foot that we should be leading all of our hiring and interview questions. And then everything else is just a nice add-on. Because if you don't have this, you don't have anything. Thank you. That, that was amazing from all of you. I feel like we covered so much. I'm going to ask one last question, but I, I, I don't know if there's any more to add to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, so from all your perspectives, what should startups do this year uh, differently, um, given that economic outlook? And if you do have advice to, to aspiring new founders, what would that be? So I'll start with Olga. So Brian was saying earlier that usually startups are solving for the same uh, issues. So when we go through the list of the, the hundreds of companies that we have evaluated in the previous years, and we see the reasons why we have passed, usually it comes to the same. Um, one scale, so there are many, there are many advantages of building companies in Canada, but also even if you just think about the size of the population, that also uh, results in um, sometimes limitations to scale. So one of the things that we usually encourage founders to do is to think uh, beyond the Canadian borders and think uh, when it's possible to even like venture into the U.S., to think about North America as a whole. And to like from the very beginning, think how can they be how can they build defensibility globally? That's one. Then the second one would be usually product market fit. And I mean, one we know that resources might be limiting right now, but that's when you have to be very resourceful about how you're going to prove that traction, how you're going to demonstrate that. There is that appetite for your product, for your service. And some of the things that I usually recommend is building wait lists, uh, creating distribution agreements, even like just making sure that you're speaking to your customers, that you're like co-developing the products and services with them. That's already uh, something that demonstrates that you are on the right way. So that's something else. And then finally, back to your question about what would we recommend to aspiring entrepreneurs? I would say that, again, you know, like there has never been a better time to build a company that has, that is mission-driven. I would say that overall, when it's, it's urgent, we know that summer will come soon and we don't want to see the forest fires. There are many challenges that we have right now. So um, there are many problems to solve there 
but also there's an increasing appetite from investors and um yeah we, we definitely want to see the ecosystem uh growing and we have many advisors around willing to support these entrepreneurs so certainly i would say take 2024 as a call to action and start building um also from your heart and what are the things that can improve people's lives that can truly improve the environment and uh, Brian? Yes, there's a, a couple of things that I say startups should do in 2024. To me, one of them is diversify your team. Um, you know, we, we're supporting underrepresented founders in the climate tech, clean techs. And it's not just because those are the ones that have been passed over or haven't got the investment, but we also see they tend to be more resilient. If you're in a company, founder from any one of the underrepresented groups, you usually have to do more with less. So going into 2024, you know, or coming even going through 2023, those founders are the ones that I saw knew how to stretch out the capital that was given for them. I think Glenn had said, you know, it's not about going and looking what's the next big capital raise, right? It's how can you work with what you've had, make that stretch longer. So if, you know, if you're a small team, okay, maybe going in Getting another team member is not necessarily the easiest, but you can diversify by looking at who do you reach out to as advisors? Who do you bring in in the team that way? Because if they all either went to the same school that you did or, or, or look like you did, they're going to have one sort of perspective. So the more you can diversify your perspective and diversify your thought, to me, that, that is one thing you should be looking at um, going into 2024. The other thing for aspiring founders um, is, I love what Olga said, leading from your heart and leading to solve a big pro problem that you're passionate about or, or passionate about the future, but also go and talk to customers about it before you build anything. I still remember uh, one of the entrepreneurs I was mentoring her before. She had this great idea and what she wanted to do, but I just kept encouraging, go out, talk to people, go talk to potential customers for this product and realize as much as what she thought she was solving was great, there wasn't a demand for it out there. So she pivoted and changed into something where there's a demand. So even before you build anything as an aspiring founder, make sure you first talk to customers or potential customers, and it's easier than you think, and see, are people really willing to get this, buy it? You know, and it's a, and it's a bit of a challenge when you're looking to disrupt something or disrupt an industry. But getting that good understanding before you go out and put a lot of time and effort into building something is key. And again, you know, speaking, you know, accelerators like Altitude can be really great in helping you get that focus. Thank you. I like what you said about the, the diversity angle, because as you know, I'm sure you all know that there is a war on DEI right now, especially in big tech, because... From their perspective, it's the thing that's slowing down progress. And if they have to get, you know, uh, representation and different perspectives at the table, the people that normally make the decisions, it just frustrates them to, to all hell. <laughs> so let's keep pushing for diversity um, in, not in teams and as well as perspectives. Yeah. Okay, finally, Glenn, what do you think? Um, Agree totally with everybody saying. Thank you very much. Like groupthink is is very dangerous, particularly for a growing startup. Um, yeah. First of all, I think when the economy and and all of its associated parts starts to improve, 
Um, I would tell startup founders to not step on the gas and start hiring like crazy to make up for lost time. I believe it's a misnomer that growth and success and the size of your team, that they have a proportional relationship. They don't. Um, small teams can accomplish some very big things. And yet we are conditioned, many startup founders are conditioned to think the larger, the better. As you all know, a lot of startups bulked up over the last few years. Um, they thought that they could execute better and execute faster if they had more people. But a lot of them were in for a nasty surprise when they realized that it was exactly the opposite, that these larger teams actually added friction. They actually added complexity. And the founders realized that they didn't have the leadership skills or the structure or the systems or the people and communication strategies that are necessary to underpin um, all of that growth. So, and my last piece of advice um, for startup founders, regardless of whether it's one person or two people or even an independent contractor, if you find yourself in the unenviable position of having to lay people off this year, uh, and as we've been saying throughout this uh, show for the last, you know, we're two months in and we're still seeing it continue. I would only ask that you please do it compassionately. Um, I can, I can tell you horror stories of, of some very impersonal and cold ways that people were laid off last year. Uh, and that's not the way we should be doing it. That's not the way we should be developing our, our company brands. And it's not the way that we should be doing things as, as human beings. So if you do have to lay people off, please do it respectfully. Please do it compassionately. And also don't just consider, you know, how much somebody earns or what their job performance is like or what their job title is when you're deciding who to let go. Right? Think very carefully about each individual's future potential. Think about who lives your vision and your values and who actually contributes to the type of culture that you ultimately want to build. Because when all of this negativity and all of this uh, economic uh, downside begins to improve, and we're starting to see signs of that already, you need to have the very best people standing with you in order to rebuild. Thank you. That, on, on that beautiful closing note, thank you, Glenn. Um, that's all we have time for today. So I thank uh, Brian, Glenn, and uh, Olga for joining us. Um, if you want more details on on this topic, uh, we actually wrote a beautiful article about is 2024 the year of investor restraint and startup resilience. It's on our website, altitudeaccelerator.ca. I invite you to check it out. Also, in, in our audience, if you have any topics that you want us to cover, please don't hesitate to reach out to us by email, communications at altitude.ca. Thank you again for joining us. And in the meantime, have fun and stay safe. Tech and Censored, an Altitude Accelerator podcast, does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and distributed by Blue Max. For more Tech and Censored content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemax.io to join us on Discord.